Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. Hi, this is Melissa Lynn, Yangang State Lead of Massachusetts, and this is my golden hour. And the double clap signifies the start of an episode. But before we begin, hey everybody, this is Connor Hallway of the Golden Hours Podcast. And listen, if you by chance get any sort of value from this episode, whether you laugh, you cry, you're entertained, or you learn something, dude, just share it with a friend. And if you don't have friends, you shouldn't be listening to podcasts. Definitely not. And nonetheless, before I introduce my guest on the right, an episode I'm extremely excited about. Who's in the building? Yo, 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 it's Abu, a.k.a. Big Fresh, checking in for another episode. Big Fresh is quite the nickname, isn't it? I love it. <laughs> I'm glad you started to own it, too, man. Yeah, yeah. I'm pumped. I, I was nervous at first. But then Dude, I'm pumped. Well, people, uh, doesn't Marcel call you now? Yeah, yeah. I love that, dude. It's all, it fits you perfect, because you're always coming here swagged up, you dress nice. On my right. Again, we just ran, this will come out right after the Tulsi 2020 episode. And again, I call pretty much every campaign, right? And we've lined up a couple more episodes in the future. But both the Tulsi campaign and your campaign was the most receptive to doing untraditional media. And so I appreciate making this so easy on us. Thank you. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. You got to follow the the man, Andrew Yang. He's role modeled that for all of us and to say... All media is good media. The podcast god, Andrew Yang. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> and so on my right, I have Melissa Lin of Yang 2020. And before we begin, I just want to say thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. This is phenomenal. <laughs> We're in the back of a freezing warehouse. This is awesome. <laughs> There's a really tiny heater that's keeping me warm. So well, well, it's off now. It's placebo effect now. <laughs> Um, nonetheless, can you just give a quick synopsis of uh, who you are and what you do? Yeah, um, I could just quickly say in, my, in the daytime, the cape that I wear, I'm actually a healthcare consultant, um, work full-time. I'm actually traveling around the world, taking care of uh, hospitals here in the U.S. and then across the pond as well. Um, but uh, at night and maybe whenever I'm procrastinating, uh, I also hold the uh, title of the Yangang State Lead for Massachusetts. So, uh, as you can imagine, for Andrew Yang, he's a scrappy kind of guy. Uh, doesn't have a lot of funds, but he knows how to spend his money. Um, and one of the things that he's always said, and he's actually quoted for saying that his biggest pa- superpower is the Yang Gang. So, while he may not have the funds to be paying uh, loads and loads of staffers across all to every single state, um, he does have Yang Gang members who are passionate about his work um, and, and are basically uh, helping him to carry his movement wherever they are. So um, Massachusetts is fully volunteer run. Um, we don't yet have a paid campaign staff members here in, in the States, but we'll be moving on to Super Tuesday fairly soon. So we should see that coming up. How big is the team in Massachusetts right now? Uh, so it depends on how you count it out. So we have three New England regional organizers. So they're responsible for helping to manage the strategy of all of New England. Was that Yenny? Uh, was there's Yenny DeRoche, yeah. uh, Christine Donahue, who was actually our original uh, Yangang State Lead of Massachusetts. She discovered Andrew through the uh, Humanist Report back in like 2018. So she's like super OG amongst all of us. An OG Yangang <laughs> member. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, and, and then we've also have a, a statewide ops team. 
where they're the ones who are essentially helping to, to help operationalize all of the stuff that happens within the Commonwealth for Andrew Yang. And then we've got a bunch of um, local leaders, folks who are our primary contacts for local Yang gangs, university Yang gangs, all dotted across um, the entire Bay State. Um, so they help us essentially to keep in touch and make sure that they're finding more supporters and converting them to volunteers and, and finding more um, folks that way. So how did you initially come, because when we had talked on the phone, you're like, this is the first time I've ever really dipped into politics <laughs> ever, right? Isn't it? Oh, yeah. How did you initially like kind of catch wind of some of the of Yang's policies and be like, yo, man, I like really want to get involved in that? Yeah. So let me be clear for um, your your viewers and listeners. So my husband is the one who will neurotically read the New York Times, Political, uh, Politico, 538, um, all of those kind of super wonky um, political papers. Um, and then I'll just kind of like get the headlines from him and be like, all right, what's happening? Every now? time he's pissed, you hear him. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and so, so I was not tuned in at all. I was like, I- I'm kind of basic current affairs kind of girl, but other than that, like politics, not interested, not excited. Um, and uh, it was him. So he sent me the Freakonomics podcast back in January of 2019. And he just said, hey, this is a really interesting guy who's running for president. Taiwanese American, just like myself. So I figured that was the reason why he was sending it to me, just purely from like an identity politics mm-hmm. perspective. Um, is your husband Taiwanese? No, he's a good Jewish American kid. White like me. Oh, my <laughs> God, yes. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, so he's like, take a listen, see what, see what you think. Kind of an interesting guy, uh, out of the box. And I was like, huh, what do you mean by that? So I listened to the podcast um, while I was uh, away on a work trip, and I had to rewind the podcast like four times at like three different spots because I was like, wait, what did he just say? No, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. A thousand bucks for everyone? Is yeah. this guy serious? Yeah, it was just stuff like that where I was just like, what, what is happening? Like He was talking about um, the way that capitalism works, and, and even with the best of intentions, you know, trying to be an entrepreneur, capitalism totally just sucks you dry. And I was like, what? What's going on? And and that's that's how I got hooked. So that that was the first hook. And then what ended up happening is we saw Joe Rogan, um, and then he was actually here in February. I remember there was a rally. Right, wasn't it in the Boston Common? Oh, and we were even we were even before that. So that was back in March. Um, in February, the Asian American Association or whatever um, from Harvard invited him to come speak. Obviously, not about his campaign per se, but more about like his identity as an Asian American and what it means to be involved in politics. So it was, so it was like, like a successful Asian dude like talking to Harvard correct. who might be running for president. Correct. Got so it. it was like the standard like disclaimer, we're not we're not endorsing him, but he is here as a presidential candidate, yada yada yada. So I was like, let's go see what, what he's this guy's about. And uh, midway through the interview, I just turned to my husband. I was like, this guy's fucking mind-balling the, 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 the presidential ca- uh, election. What is this? Um, and so it was just stuff like that where you've never heard a, p- a politician really talk in that way who's really using data and facts to, to drive his thinking and, and is really being thoughtful about why he wants to derive policy in a certain way. Um, and, and the fact that he's speaking about all different kinds of Americans um, and he's not, you know, driven only to the Asian American population. He's not driven 
um, just to Silicon the Valley yeah. or to the Silicon Valley folks, which, you know, mainstream media constantly say, oh, this guy's from Silicon Valley. By the way, he's not. Um, and, and so it's like, this is incredible that he can wrap his head around the um, issues that we are facing uh, as the United States of America and be able to come up with fairly succinct ways to, to help eradicate poverty and to, to really start to solve for the human condition. And it's just like, I'm hooked. I don't know what else to do. Um, and he's charismatic too, so like. Yeah. He is, although hilariously, having, having watched him for such a long time, we, we, we joke a little bit about how he's gone smoother, he's less awkward, he knows how to like unbutton his jacket when he sits down, like all the basic things that like a polished, can, polished candidate would potentially know because they've got the consultant that helps them with that kind of thing. And you're just like, you know what? He's a, just a socially awkward guy like most Americans. So I, that's yeah. actually kind of endearing. <laughs> yeah, he's r- wicked relatable. Yeah. So before this, you had never had a real interest in politics? No, a- absolutely not. So you were just that compelled by his policy. You were like, dude, this guy's the man. Yeah. I think uh, I would be, I would at a minimum perform my civic duty and vote in a general elect- election, possibly in primaries and, uh, you know, maybe senatorial and, and House of Representative campaigns. But You're like, from Massachusetts? No, uh, SoCal. Whoa, whereabouts? Uh, San Bernardino. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I went to L.A. once. I don't know a whole lot about Cali. <laughs> I loved it out there. It was sweet. Think about the Inland Empire is what that region is called. We typically would call it the armpit of California. So the smog would roll in from the Los Angeles coast into the valley. Uh, so that's kind of what we are known for. <laughs> Sounds terrible. I know. <laughs> when did you come out here? Um, I came out here uh, back in 2006 for grad school. and then. Where'd you go? Let me guess. Harvard? No. Okay. No, that would be made by, like, I, I was going to say, this, you I seem wicked to, smart. I go to school in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Uh, no, I went up to Dartmouth, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you are wicked smart. No. All right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> My sister graduated from HBS, oh, so I'm familiar with living in the shadow. There we go. Where did your brother go, Big Fresh? Uh, UMass Sandhurst. Oh, so you guys are, like, equal playing field. Yeah. Is that how your parents see you guys? Or are you the smart one? He went to Brandeis. I think my brother's probably more of the smarter one. Yeah. F that guy, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you hear about his policy. You've never really been into politics. And then when you kind of jump on the wagon, are you like, damn, there are a lot of people in the same position as me who don't never really cared that much about politics, but this guy's like speaking to us. Oh, hands down. Like almost 95% of the people that I've met um, who are part of the Yang Gang have been either disengaged from politics or um, have, have been peripherally, you know, uh, acknowledgeable enough to be a responsible member of society, but, but barely, barely beyond that. It's so interesting. His, like, the, the following is so passionate, and it's such a group of people who would just traditionally be like, dude, politics are, like, for geeks and nerds, and, like, we don't have time for this, man. Yeah. Especially if you think about, I mean, people that I've personally met um, and now who I can certainly call uh, friends to some extent. I mean, I you know, know now libertarian friends, people who were Trump voters. Um, but then also if you look at the spectrum of folks who are in there, I'm also meeting retired police sheriff who has um, an adult autistic son now. 
um, people who work in cybersecurity, software engineers, people who are working in healthcare, marketing. I mean, it's just the, the whole gamut of folks who um, really actually care, but partly because this message is so uh, broad um, and so relatable to, to everybody. Is it mostly people in like our demographic, like 20 to 40? No. No? No. Uh, there's um, one of our um, most passionate, uh, actually a, a family set of, of two family members that we know in the Massachusetts Yang Gang. Um, one is in the, his 60s and his mother is um, Roz. She is now, she's going to be 83 this year. What, what is she like about him? Uh, she just cannot get enough of him. Um, if you want to look her up, uh, she actually just recently did um, Nerds for Yang podcast where he had her on her show and just was like, can you just tell us what, what, what your experiences are like? Because you've lived through multiple presidents. And I think she actually is uh, quoted for saying, I've never been this excited since like Reagan. And we're like, what? <laughs> See, that the whole Nerds for Yang podcast thing is like r- really, really interesting to me because the campaign is slaying it on social media and making the campaign relatable mm-hmm. to consumers. Mm-hmm. And it's calculated, though. It's not just random. Like, um, I mean, we were talking about this beforehand about how he was like, um, I guess I got to go see Parasite now. Or when he didn't he like whipped cream some lady out of in their face at a, a rally. I was like, this guy's like he loves it. It's awesome. Yeah. He's And he's he's making sure that his campaign is fun yeah. for people because that's what people ultimately want. I mean, the, the entire election at certain points mm-hmm. seems like reality TV. And so he. he it comes across that he's like, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying myself. Like I'm, I'm a major candidate. So yeah. Uh, the interesting thing is I've had a couple of, of my own friends who, you know, are not, not quite yet picking anyone, but they're, they appreciate my um, enthusiasm for Bernie Andrews campaign. And they'll say, wow, he really knows how to play to his audience. And so I'll actually correct them and say, you know what though, that's not him doing something on behalf of a, a core de- demographic, that's just him being him. And so the the interesting thing I think that people realize when they meet him for the first time or multiple times over is that he's just consistently being himself. And he's, he's not, genuine. He, yeah, he's genuine, he's authentic, he's playing to it, he truly is having fun. Um, to, to some extent, you know, Zach Grabbin is campaign manager is like, oh, okay, you know, there's there's a limitation on like how much fun you can be having, but you know, because they they do want to let the the mainstream media and political um, spectrum know that he is actually serious. serious about the work he's doing, and that's kind of where he has that balance of you know using data and research and all of his policies to kind of speak on his behalf, but. You know, it doesn't mean that he can't, you know, talk about the fact that he's a full-on basketball fan and wants yeah. to talk about basketball when he wants to talk about it, right? When did the campaign, because you were there early, at some point the campaign really became legitimate and people, had, f- from an average consumer standpoint, thought it was just kind of a joke. Mm-hmm. When it was it like, oh, shoot, this guy's like for real, like this is going to happen. He actually has people pouring out numbers to come see him. Definitely say maybe or between the second and third debate. Um, when was that? That was about October or November or so, where you know you could start to hear how different the moderators were asking questions about him. I think the first one or two, you know, they would specifically ask him questions about China, and it was like, hmm, 
slightly and supposedly racist. Yeah. Don't ask the sole Asian, Asian guy <laughs> about China. Asian American guy about China. Um, but but then as they started actually asking him questions about and and actually the other candidates, they were forcing them to respond to whether or not the freedom dividend was a uh, 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 you know truly serious uh, policy and what what does that actually mean um, with respect to their own views of, of how they would be running their own administrations. And that, I think that's when, when you could see uh, the, the rest of America kind of say, hey, he's better at understanding the problems that are facing um, our everyday lives, and he's responding to it better than any of the other candidates on stage um, who are under the same pressure that he is um, under that spotlight. And so were you, on, you were on board before it became legitimate, <laughs> like yeah. I'm talking about, right? Yeah. So what was y- what has your day to day been like as a campaign lead? Uh, what when you're not like Melissa, the healthcare professional? <laughs> and does does anyone in your like normal workplace know that you're a big yang person? I mean, very very subtly, I think some people know that that I'm into it partly because I have like subliminal messages you can see on my the background of your phone, phone, yeah. Um, and and little things like that. But are you purposely keeping it quiet or? <laughs> Yeah, as most workplaces are. Um, and technically, I don't work in um, in my physical office, so I work remotely. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I don't have too many people physically in the office to, to talk to about about that work. But um, you know, when you think about what it takes to be uh, helping to to strategize amongst um, you know really really passionate and really smart people who you know you don't get to see often. I mean, our regional organizers are out in Worcester and Newton and, and out in Peabody, um, but we can have these great um, strategizing calls um, or conversations online about, okay, what's the next thing and what's the next thing? And I think a lot of it has to do with both the clear vision that the campaign um, really informs us of uh, to ensure that, that we're on the same track as, as they are so that we can properly represent not just uh, Andrew's movement but also the, the work that needs to happen for him to be to continue to be um, strong in, in the race um, but it, it also uh, is the fact that they do give us a lot of freedom to to be able to figure out okay we are ultimately the subject matter experts of our state so what is going to work for Massachusetts we know more about our supporters and our super volunteers so what's going to get them excited um, what actually is you know evidence-based in terms of turning out the vote and and everything else specific to Massachusetts or to New Hampshire and how do we support that um, and that that freedom and flexibility really allows us to pivot um, much more naturally I think okay so real quick shift um, I'd said this during the Tulsi episode too but I think if if we can use our podcast as any s- creating some hashtag value for people, it's for kids our age, me and Big Fresh. Big Fresh, you're 23, right? I'm 24. No one really cares about the election enough to get out and vote. It's just the truth. My friends, they don't really care. There's some people who are really passionate about it. Um, and so I want to at least be able to simplify Yang's policy and how they relate to people my age and in my position. So, one, can you just kind of simplify universal basic income, what it is, what it means, and does everyone get a thousand bucks a month? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, 
the Freedom Dividend comes from this. That's what it's dubbed, right? The Freedom Dividend. That's what he's called it. It's the, the one, I don't know if it's the single time that he's he's uh, actually called for a focus group, but it's the one time that he, he, uh, he uh, talks about the fact that he used a focus group to uh, figure out what was the right name for, mm-hmm. for it because universal basic income doesn't quite roll off the tongue. Yeah. Nor does it sound the Freedom Dividend. Particularly interesting. Money for all. I know. The freedom dividend uh, comes from this um, age-old concept called universal basic income. Um, those of you who've uh, heard him talk about this on other podcasts will know that it, it's come from uh, back in the days of Thomas Paine to Martin Luther King. Andy Stern uh, has also talked about it prominently as well. Um, but the ultimate idea is that um, it's not means-tested in any way possible. It's um, money in your pocket for any American c- citizen, um, no questions asked. So simply by being an American citizen, you get a thousand bucks a month. The number was set essentially by figuring out what was the, the poverty level, which is about $12,000. And so therefore, um, his, his point is that everybody should have the opportunity to participate and contribute to society, but you shouldn't have to start at zero. Um, so at a minimum, start at $12,000 a year at essentially where poverty, the poverty level is set, and then start to feel, feel like you might have a choice in how whether you go to school or whether you stay at home with your kids or whether or not you quit a job that is really abusive or you know, doesn't really suit um, what, you're, what you think is the right way to spend your time every day uh, to go find another job or to make your own and that's really what the freedom dividend comes from. Um, and and it's, a, it's a really beautiful um, uh, and elegant concept. And ultimately the reason why he's so passionate about it is because the, the, the foundation of, of why Andrew um, decided to run for president is because he realized that the reason why Donald Trump got elected is because we eliminated 4 million manufacturing jobs in all of the swing states that Donald Trump one, and in m- many, if not the majority of all of those manufacturing jobs got eliminated because of automation and technology. Uh, we do live in the 21st century, so we are all experiencing it now with smartphones, the things that we see in our supermarkets and fast food joints, or how customer service is being run nowadays, where you typically are getting bots first before you get uh, the real human. It's the worst. Doing. Oh. That's all technology around us. You ever been on the phone with GoDaddy? Oh, oh God. <laughs> oh. The worst thing in the world? Oh, my God. Hit 9876543211. Put your name in. They'll call you back in 20. They call you back in 20. It's another robot. Like, good oh God. God. See? And, and that's the thing is, right now, it feels clunky. It feels like they're not actually getting to the, the solution that you need to solve your GoDaddy problems. Um, are we advertising for GoDaddy all of a sudden? Um, maybe not. <laughs> Depending on what we're talking about here. I was joking. Uh, if you guys want a sponsor. <laughs> um, but it's going to get better is the thing. And so what he started thinking about all of those call service workers who are on the receiving end of your second attempt at solving your problems or your third attempt at solving your problems the AI is going to learn more and more over time. And it's the acceleration cycle that comes with machine learning where all of a sudden we're not going to need that human being anymore because they'll have learned enough to solve your problems and actually leave you satisfied this time. 
And, and we, we're seeing that in manufacturing, and he's already predicting that that's going to happen with um, truckers. because Self-driving trucks. Self-driving trucks that are being... Shout out to Tesla. Right. So Tesla's doing it. I think Volvo is doing it as well. But there's the most recent story about the robot truck that brought butter, frozen butter, or refrigerator butter from uh, across the U.S. and did it successfully. No way. Yeah. Look you up. heard of this? Can I, I'm just gonna search this. Go oh my on. god! Go what what what's the name of the company? I can't remember off the top of my head. But what should I what should I Google search? Look up robot butter truck and it'll come up. Um, but this could come up as a couple things. That's what's happening <laughs> right now, right? So the thing about Andrew, I think that people um, misunderstand about him is that it's not that he's saying that technology is bad and that he wants to slow down technology. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. Humans will always err on the side of convenience, no matter what. Exactly, right? And that's part of what you're seeing from a lot of the solutions that are coming out of Silicon Valley and all of the other tech hubs. That's why there's an Uber for everything, you know what I'm saying? Exactly. You've got Uber Eats and and so many other things that... that We had a a company up here called Host, and they're like Mm -hmm. the Uber for private bartending services for corporate events, and they're killing it. Because all these rich corporate people are like, yeah, we need a bartender at our event because we want to get smashed every Thursday night. Right. Host. There you go. There you go. And they figured out what, how do you standardize that process of uh, getting basically a planned event and that, that one aspect of getting bartending um, into your space. Right? Mm-hmm. And you can see how that can be repeated across so many different kinds of industries, so many different kinds of needs that we have as human beings. Um, and so the technology will continue to grow in that in that space. And so what he's saying is that it's inevitable. It can be good for us. A lot of those jobs that, that technology is replacing, they're incredibly grueling and very manually intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and they wear people down physically and mentally. I uh, can't remember the name of the book, but there was a, a woman who published a book that was basically about what is it like to work at a McDonald's or Amazon fulfillment center where it's like these constant repetitive manual uh, labor intensive jobs and and she talks a lot about the the toll that it takes um, physically on your body and also psychologically and that people come out of it basically to some extent with PTSD and so do we want to do I want to hold on to these jobs like hold on to the past or do we want to say actually this is probably for the best because we're not using our people very well. We're basically expending them and making them disposable as as human labor. Let's use let's let's bend into the productivity savings that come with it and the the physical and emotional savings that come out of it. But his concern is that billions of dollars that you save in productivity, the self-driving trucks is a great example. You save on essentially um, labor, labor, but no, actually, um, accidents and deaths on the road. And healthcare, right? Yep. So you've got these folks who are stuck in these trucks for hours on end, chronic back pain, diabetes, all of these things that will come up because it's a very, un- it can be a very unhealthy lifestyle. It is. It's so totally let's sedentary. Let's take that out, but those billions of dollars can we at least siphon off a little bit of that and distribute it across 
fairly for all of the American citizens, and that's essentially where the freedom building process starts, is to say, you know what, technology, awesome. Thank you for taking away that you know, labor-intensive job. Let's now give people a chance to look into something that they are actually very passionate about, whether it might be coaching the uh, you know, little league soccer, mm-hmm. because I love soccer, but nobody pays the, the you know, parent coach to, to do that work. I love woodworking. I want to become an artisan and actually be able to share my craft and, and actually get paid for it. But I couldn't do that because that would be a really pay- high-paying job. We now have the freedom dividend to essentially give you that lift to be an entrepreneur or to just generally be a good member of society and contribute in a different way. So playing devil's advocate, I think a lot of people here, $1,000 a month will make people wicked lazy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure. So, so what would you say to that? I would be surprised to see how people can live on $12,000 a year. So if they can, by all means, then don't work. But it's, it's, I, I would be impressed. But it's just like it's like it's just like being on a salary. It's just like you know the check's coming in, so you don't necessarily have to bust your ass as hard or work as hard. Like, yo, my groceries are paid for this month. I don't have to I don't have to exert myself the extra effort. And I think why a lot of people have friction to it is because like as Americans forever we've rewarded the extra work, the the intestinal fortitude, the initiative. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's essentially um, founded on that that you know intense that grind, baby boy. Ethic, right? yeah. um, but here's the thing: the studies. Uh, if you look at past studies on universal basic income and where it stood on, there were specifically two groups of people who um, chose not to work because they were receiving um, essentially the freedom dividend. They were um, young people who chose to go to school, or they were parents who decided to stay at home. Um, with a young kid. I wouldn't argue that that would be a bad thing. Oh, so kids get a thousand too? No, so it's the parents that were staying at home, right? Because they want to be able to be there for those formative years mm-hmm. of learning, right? The engagement, interaction with a parent, spending time with them, listening to them, um, you know, talk to them and, get and read books to them. That kind of uh, learning that's happening in those years, those are the kinds of people who, who chose not to work as they were receiving that universal basic income. So, so those people went back to work after, you know, the, wh- when the kids grew up, they went started going to school, then they're like, okay, great. I still have this thousand bucks a month or, or whatever um, the, the money was at the, for that particular study, and I can now use it to now decide where do I want to go to work? Where do I want to spend my time? So I, I think it's a, it's a reasonable question to be asking about what does happen when people have the freedom dividend in their hands, but I think people would be surprised how easy it is for their cynicism to, to be displaced. Because people do want to to contribute to society. There is a social identity that does come with working. And so people will want to gravitate towards, okay, you know, I've, I've got this floor now that I can work with. What do I want to do? I, I love to bake. I, can I make my own bakery and open up my own business? Sure. Not with 12 Gs. You need more than that. Well, you need more than that. But I think that's the thing. Is it gives you the initial. I get it. It gives you the, the initial investment to start thinking about how can I do that. I'll tell you right now, if I had a thousand a month, I would easily rent out a studio space, a, th- a thousand extra. Right. How many more productions would you be able to do by by doing this? 
listened to be able to we, we would not slow down right <laughs> to be able to have all the podcasts that you could possibly uh, you know have all the content that you want to be able to share with your listeners who knows i get it question though how do how does the government how are they going to regulate the thousand like what if you dump me a thousand i was like yo i'm just gonna go buy mad weed so here's the thing so you're gonna go buy some <laughs> mad weed which for andrew he's gonna legalize it so that's all right so i'm gonna go buy mad percocet <laughs> <laughs> oh lord now we're going to the black market yeah. but either way you're putting money into an economy granted this one's a black market economy but you're putting into the economy, so you spent, well, just say you spent a hundred bucks on the Percocet, but that hundred dollars in that person's pocket that you that they sold sold it to, they're not gonna take that hundred bucks and. What if they buy more pills though? Spend it on groceries, or if they spend, I mean, let's let's legalize it a little bit. If you're going to if you're going to a weed store, right, then that money gets into that that store, and then what happens then? They can hire another employee because if the demand is there, right. But then that employee is getting the you know twenty bucks an hour. They're going to be able to use that to buy groceries or send their kid to daycare or go out on that date that they've always wanted to go out. Um, I get it. How do you regulate it though? Like, would they give you maybe a debit card on certain expenditures? Like, okay, here's a thousand. You can only spend this on food, gas, and shelter. No, no question. So, that. so it's literally just like the, they give you a G. So you just got to hope people are good people and they spend it on the good stuff, right? Well, I think that's the thing that, uh, that's a common question that we get a lot of the time is, well, what do you do if someone decides to spend it on something irresponsible? Yeah, if someone bought a gun. So sure, fine, someone spends it on a gun, which we could talk about Andrew's gun policies later, but um, it's, still, it's still funneling into the economy, right? The interesting thing is that that $50 or that $100 you spend gets spent again and again and again. And so that is creating far more value in the economy than what you could possibly do if you tried to have tax cuts, you know, and use the trickle-down effect that, that we've been sold is supposed to be working, but clearly it hasn't. So how would it work? Like, y- you would wire your your bank account number to some sort of like government funded program like the freedom yeah. dividend and they would just be like, okay it's march 1st here's a g yeah i can't remember what the functioning mechanism that he t- talked about he mentioned it a few times but i think generally it's supposed to be essentially electronic so that you don't have the fuss of like the paper check that gets lost in the mail or goes to somebody else and checks on and all that jazz um so yeah i think it, you know andrew being andrew wants to make it technologically savvy and mm-hmm. so um, you know, coming up with a way, essentially, pretty like a debit card um, mechanism to, to essentially help support them. And when would that take place, like his first day of his presidency? Well, uh, considering uh, the mechanics that would have to be worked out. It takes so long, right? I mean, it's similar to, you know, people ask that question a lot of the time. I think it was in one of the debates of what's the first thing that you're going to work on or the only thing that you're going to work on. And I think I recognize, I think Obama essentially kind of had to do that. He was like, I'm just going to work on Obamacare for the first two years because it's a really hard it's thing it's to put into it's place. It's going to take mad long. Yeah, so I think... The and then it got reversed. Oh, well... Parts of it, yeah. Parts of it got it reversed. Still there. So that's the interesting thing about Obamacare is uh, parts of it have been reversed, but the the crux of it. Um, the skeleton is still there. The s- yeah. It's still there, and the market has already pivoted. 
And so I, knowing a lot of the different kinds of insurance companies and providers, and particularly in our country, they've essentially said, it's too much work to undo. Yeah, we've already done all the work. So we're, we're just going to keep on going. So you've seen that in totally going off on a tangent here, but this year alone where um, it got reversed, the mandate got reversed, and uh, the attempts to, to advertise and promote Ob uh, Obamacare, um, the deadline to renew, um, that also got siphoned away in terms of its budget. People still signed up for their health care. So the, the levels of, um, of enrollment is still basically the same. Wow. So, you know, in any case, I think uh, that's probably going to be the, the major thing that he works on is, is because people know him for, for being so passionate about the freedom dividend because of all of the oncoming effects of 21st uh, century. It's also a very marketable central policy. Like, this is the guy who's going to give everyone a thousand bucks. Right. It makes sense. I was having a conversation with the Tulsi campaign. And I was like, she kind of chose like a tough central policy. Like we want to pull all everyone out of war so we can use all that money and then put it to stuff in the States. So it's, it was smart. It's really smart. And one thing that me and big fresh were talking about before was a thousand dollars to someone in Boston is a much different than a thousand dollars to someone in Little Rock, Arkansas. So is there, is there a spectrum with that? If people get a thousand dollars? Yeah. So we've been asked about that a lot of times. So is it going to be means tested? Meaning, is it going to be um, adjusted because of the, the income that you bring in, or if based off of quality of life in in different regions? And so, uh, his his response is essentially, you're essentially adding on all of the bureaucratic layers that we're trying to eliminate from the simplicity and the elegance of the freedom dividend, which is the whole no questions asked. We're not we're not have putting in these gates to prove that you deserve the freedom dividend. Um, the same thing for that. So yeah, I, he, he gets it. You know, being in Boston versus being you know in the middle of, of Arkansas is a different type of lifestyle and therefore a different type of um, you know prices on rent and housing and all those things. That being said, um, the the thing that he finds to be fascinating about the freedom dividend, and he's also got another policy that talks about this, is the creating that freedom to move. Um, I can't remember what the specific... It's really interesting is. that you bring that up. Yeah, because he talks a lot about how um, that used to actually be a metric um, that we've, we've watched very closely, is um, how often people moved in the country to potentially find um, better opportunities. And that has come down to essentially an all-time low uh, because people are uh, in chains to their jobs, in chains to their jobs because of health care, um, a lot of different reasons that are preventing people from being mobile um, in this country. And so he talks a lot about how certainly both the freedom dividend but also another policy of his that, that talks about creating more of that mobility so that people can create a diverse and thriving market in the middle of Arkansas, for example, because they can do more um, with uh, the freedom dividend floating around in that entire community, it becomes far more attractive um, when you have that type of freedom um, and circulation of, of money uh, floating around. So I think it, a lot of uh, what re what's required in, in thinking about the freedom dividend is, is realizing that he's asking um, for us to really imagine a society in the future that is going to be full of abundance, but I think sometimes we get stuck in saying, oh, I don't want to move to Arkansas, or I don't want to move to Mississippi or whatever, and dump on 
jump on somebody's floor um, space in the in the middle of it. It's like, but what would it what would it look like if all of a sudden there's forty three million dollars a month floating around in this one town? What what could we do differently? Right. I get it. So where would the money come from? Sure. <laughs> Great question. So um, there's a couple of different um, ways that he's going to pay for it. Also, you understand his policy. You got it down, man. <laughs> Came ready. Thank uh, you for answering all that questions. I'm surprised you know the answers to all this stuff. Well, this is the thing about Andrew Yang is uh, he gets everyday people um, starting to become super nerdy. And I think that's part of his uh, his uh, acronym of math, right? He talks about like he's the guy who knows all the math. But in all, in all actuality, it's an acronym that stands for Make America Think Harder. Mm-hmm. So. I know more. I, I'm not a. I'm not an expert at all. But I know more about geoengineering and thorium than I probably ever would before he entered my life. This guy got you pumped, man. Because he's starting to talk about it, and I'm intrigued. I'm like, well, what does this mean? And and how do you how do you how does this work? And is nuclear energy really actually safe now? Like, okay, well, I want to know more about it. That that's what he does to people. So go figure. Um, so, so the freedom dividend, how's it going to get paid? Um, so the major portion of it I- is actually going to get paid by what is called a value added tax or a VAT. Um, and, and that's something that's actually fairly common in Europe already. Um, most countries, they're uh, taxed at 20% um, on all goods and services. Um, and so he's actually uh, proposing to uh, do it on an average of 10%. So it's already at half of what is uh, most commonly used um, overseas. So federally, everything is you have a ten percent tax on it. Correct. And so you you buy milk in Massachusetts or you buy milk in Arkansas, it sells for let's say it's one buck, it's a cup of milk. You're going to pay a dollar and ten cents. Yeah, exactly. And he would actually argue that because milk is a is a you know common staple or something that um, if you're if you're looking at how people spend their money. You know, especially people um, in in the lower classes, that they're going to be spending their their money on food, on food staples. So, if anything, he's not going to have a value added tax of ten percent on on milk. He might actually drop it or exempt it altogether. But y- you can create a value added tax that's progressive, that that kind of increases or decreases based off of um, consumption. Um, a value added tax, just very simply, is is essentially. Uh, levying a tax on every single step of production. So think about it um, from the basics of let's just use clothing, for example. You're going to tax by uh, when you're collecting the cotton, and then when that moves over to the next producer who then spins it into thread, you're going to collect a a vat on that as well. And then someone's actually going to weave that and make that into a shirt. That's going to levy a tax. And then you're going to have to sell it to the stores to then um, sell that to us. And so there's a couple of times where a VAT is going to get picked up. But it's going to be 10% on average along the way. So that's going to be like one cent here for the co- cotton. I get it. Cents, five cents, 10 cents, until you get to the shirt that we From buy. From production to consumer. Correct. It's 10% so total. buy it for 30 bucks, but you're going to have that 10%. So you know it's going to be maybe three bucks um, for VAT. But that's going to get paid throughout. So every single producer in that line, they're, they're only going to be paying a little bit at a time. Um, and so that money could eventually get cl- um, funneled up. So what actually Andrew talks a lot more about is the fact that you know, the, the value-added tax is going to be really, really important when you look at that you know, robot truck mile or 
the Amazon sale or that Facebook click on that ad, all of those things could also be applied with the value added tax. And that's where all of the savings are happening right now for technology, right? So you're getting all of this revenue, but we're, we're not seeing that in local newspapers for, for personal ad revenue, for example. So those things are, are where we're gonna pick up on um, the revenue to then redistribute. That's the majority of, of where the freedom dividend is going to get um, paid for. Uh, so it also talks about capital. Are rich people pissed about that? Uh, you know what? Uh, he, he's got a lot of people who he knows who are part of that class and people who are, if anything, part of the, the, the folks who are creating that technology. And he asked them, would you be willing to pay just a little bit so that you know society doesn't go into a uh, total and utter collapse? And they're like, oh, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I feel like someone who's, let's say, self-made right now. They're a multi-bajillionaire. They're like, okay, I started broke. Why should I pay a little extra money so it can go to someone, again, in Arkansas, who might just use it on a bag of weed? Well, that's the thing, though, is that if you ask that person in particular who essentially did start from scratch, they'll recognize that along the way they've had these opportunities that were given to them or that they were able to, to seize. Um, and that is through, you know, the having an entrepreneurial spirit, having mentors who are able to support you through that, people who are willing to give you that um, first initial seed of investment, right? Well, where are you going to get that seed of investment in from now? So the, the mindset of abundance that Andrew Yang talks a lot about that's trying to encourage people to say, like, hey, there's actually more money in the richest country in the world. We can actually distribute it. Um, really, really well and use that use it through the freedom dividend. Um, and so new billion, b- new bajillionaires of the future, of the 21st or if we get there, the 22nd century, um, they'll be able to have folks who have a freedom dividend who say, you know what, last month I spent my thousand bucks on weed, this month I spent my thousand bucks on utility bills, you know, trying to be responsible. Third month, I'm going to spend this thousand bucks on my friend who's got a really cool idea and I think he's got something going and I want to f- I want to fund his company. That person could be the next bajillionaire, right? So so if anything, that person would actually truly understand why the freedom dividend could could really help. Um, the I can't remember if it's the uh, uh, Cuomo from Weezer or somebody else, um, one of his friends, who's actually quoted for saying, if we had the freedom dividend, we would be able to have a new Beatles band every single year because because they have the first seed investment. I get it. Correct. Artists would artists would actually be able to not fear whether or not they they can put food on the table or actually be able to pay their rent. They could actually focus on their art. And then what would happen? Who's the next Billie Eilish or who's going to be you know the, the the next Weezer? You know who knows. I think right now though the appeal of success stories. And mind you, I, all I ever think about is being successful. It's the truth. Well, it's the truth. Like, I really want to be successful to my core. Like, it's I work like a cycle because of it. I make the sacrifices because of it. But I think a lot of people gravitate towards the story. Like, okay, this is the hand you were dealt. Make the most of it. Do you think it, we're, like, kind of eliminating that in a way by giving someone a 1000 Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that classic, like, yo, just grind out the back of a warehouse type story. Yeah, I could see, I could see what 
you mean by that in terms of that that classic story mm. of I, I you know rolled up my sleeves and and I worked hard against all odds. Um, but let's be clear, there are plenty of other things that that um, um, present themselves as challenges. And and if anything, the the particularly thing the particular thing that that Andrew is passionate about um, is that this is going to help eradicate poverty in particular for um, those people of, of color and people who have constantly been underserved the, the most out of all of this. And so they're the folks that, that truly need the leg up and, and cold hard cash is actually going to be the, the best and the easiest way to help kind of level that playing field because in all honesty, there are tons of other things out there that's going to hold them back and so they'll still have that, you know, really nice, you know, um, rags to riches story um, available to them. So it I get it. You don't need you don't need the lack of income to be the, the one thing to, to prevent people from getting there. I get it. Maybe I'm being prideful. <laughs> B- Big Fresh. Um, so you Big Fresh is an admitted Yang Gang supporter too. Um, so you talked a b- little bit about like UBI, and I'm not sure how directly this relates, but uh, I've heard Andrew talk about um, kind of regulating uh, personal data when it's being sold by these um, giant tech companies uh, to advertisers and kind of having the user get a share of that as like almost like a, na- like a dividend when you're like investing in like a stock market. So could you talk a little bit more about like data regulation and how that's going to work? Yeah, so uh, the, f- the funny thing is that uh, his policy on data as a property right has almost nothing to do with UBI. So this is even on top of okay. um, the, the freedom dividend of a thousand bucks a month. So um, one of the things that, that you don't hear many other candidates talk about, but Andrew is, is extraordinarily concerned about, is the fact that we are giving away information about ourselves every single time that we are engaging with our smartphones, with social media, with you know whatever we're buying um, off, um, off of certain websites. Right. It's insane. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But it's like we'll, we'll be talking. Like we talked about the robot butter truck. I swear to God, it will be on Instagram later, and the and like Aunt Jemima's butter will pop up. Right. <laughs> I probably. <laughs> or a GoDaddy website. Yeah. Based on the fifth time that we've mentioned that name. <laughs> um. And so, so that's the thing, though, is that it's become so subconscious for us that we don't realize that this is this is critical data that they can that now resell and resell to other third-party vendors who can take that data, manipulate it, and figure out the 23-year-old male, either from, you know, coming out of Massachusetts or or what have you, or, you know, a Brandeis alum, and figure out, oh, those folks particularly love to buy tablets of this kind of nature. So we're going to pop this ad over in the corner and see whether or not he clicks on it. It's insanely invasive. Yeah. If uh, I think in, was it a couple of years ago where Facebook was like, oh, okay, we'll tell you what we're collecting information on, and you can decide whether or not you'd want to unclick um, all of this information about you, which, by the way, we're going to recollect on you uh, in, in like the next like ah, 10 minutes or so. But then you looked at, if you actually clicked through, and you're like, huh, they know that you know I you know, like to shop at White House Black Market, and I tend to skew liberally. Um, and so I tend to click on things that are, are tending towards that, like Planned Parenthood or what have you. Oh, and by the way, she also happens to like ballet and heavy metal and what all of these other things. And they're like, oh, shit, that's 
way more information than I thought I was giving out, but it's intuitively figuring that out on your behalf. So what he's saying is that this data that they're collecting, we deserve to, to own that, and you decide whether or not you want to participate in that. So he said, fine, you know, we're perfectly happy giving the data to Facebook and to whomever they resell it to, but I want something back out of that, right? You're, you're deriving millions and billions of dollars of income based off of, it, off of that information that says I fit into a certain demographic. I want like five cents, you know, for, for that information that I'm giving to you. And that's actually being tested right now. There's a, a startup, I can't remember if it's like DUDI or whatever, where they're actually a third-party vendor where they'll take the data that you input into their, their software and they'll sell it on your behalf and you actually get income back for it. And that's actually what he's talking about. Is it only makes sense yeah. because yeah. it's like you're essentially like a, like a networker, like you're a, a broker. You're literally giving companies all your consumer behavior and they can sell it for sell stuff to you for free because they know exactly what you like. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's essentially you're realizing that back in the day they used to sell, you know, they used to um, ask people to be that secret shopper. Right or you know to go click around and tell me what you like, but I'll pay you like twenty bucks in credit for like magazine subscriptions or what have you. But at least you got something mm -hmm. out of the time that you were spending. Now it's like, oh well, you're telling us mostly just because I went to Amazon.com and bought that pan, so now you know that I'm buying kitchen supplies. And next thing you know, Facebook is gonna advertise to me, you know, Le Creuset, and they're like, oh, how did they know that I was interested in that? Hmm. You know, so so it's it's become this thing where it is so subconscious where he's like, wait, time out. Like, let's let's tell them that, you know, we deserve to, to earn some portion of that income. And, you know, you're talking again, a very small sliver of it, but it, it's it should be a right. To answer your question. Yeah. And then just kind of um, building off of that. Are there any like policies or plans in place to kind of improve technological literacy in America? Like just uh, starting from like the um, K through 12 level even up to like you know like I feel like a lot of people in like even today's government like don't have like a very clear idea on how some of these technologies work oh my god yes <laughs> just evolving so fast yeah. yeah yeah so there's a couple of things that that he wants to put into place so let's let's talk first about um kind of k through 12 literacy so there's a there's a policy that he has that talks essentially about kind of life skills um, literacy that, that he wants to embed. A part of that is what you would expect because he is the freedom dividend guy, so let's talk about financial literacy. That's um, essential. Right. And the funny thing that he says all the time is like, you know, we could put financial literacy classes in now if we wanted to, but you're not going to pay attention if you don't have any income, right? If your mom and dad are struggling, to pay the bills and you personally don't have any income and you, you don't even know what's going to happen after you graduate. You're essentially thinking about, you know, what's the job that you're going to get so you can help out mom and dad. You have no money to, to try and understand these fake uh, scenarios by which you're trying to uh, calculate interest rates on, on a checking account, right? Because you're not going to have a checking account. You have no money. Yeah, I didn't really understand any of this stuff until after college. Right? Mm. But if you know that you're going to get a thousand bucks a month starting, you know, four months from now because I'm going to turn 18 before I graduate, you better believe that you're going to start paying attention. 
right? Uh, so that's the basic thing. But I think as part of uh, the number of different types of skills that he wants to introduce, one of them is is about time management and and how do you use uh, technology and and particularly social media in that type of way. Um, how do you how do you deal with psychological um, resilience um, as as they kind of start going into the to the workplace and, and engaging with people that are not in that school setting. Right, so there's going to be an aspect of that that, that he's really interested in, um, and then he goes all the way to the top as well. So uh, he's constantly quoted for saying that um, we used to have what we called an office of technology assessment that was uh, part of the administration, and they got rid of it back in 1995. So just think about that. There is nobody who's qualified to inform our highest officials in the country about what kind of technological advances are happening right now. Not, not someone in a consistent and qualified way. And so he's like, yeah, you, you wonder why we're asking dumb questions about Facebook and how Facebook generates revenue and how Facebook works. And why are we getting hacked? And why are we, <laughs> why are we getting hacked, right? Uh, so so that's, a, that's a key thing that he wants to talk about is, you know, how do we make sure that we are actually functionally literate in the 21st century and, and the greatest transformation of, of our society so that we can actually anticipate what's going to happen in the future. Um, and, and one piece of that as well, we're talking about technological uh, literacy, is um, he's very concerned about the way that, that we um, are engaging in technology, social media in particular, and he wants to put something into place I will think see what how the name actually pans out, but I think he's calling it like the Department of the Attention Economy. So how do you actually engage in that social media, and and what are you giving up in that time, or you know what are the psychological ramifications of spending time on social media? You know, I wonder that myself all the time. <laughs> right. I I mean, mind you, we run a big podcast, so it's like on my phone a lot. I'm w- I'm wondering if tests will come out in like thirty years based on like, okay, these are the effects that looking at your phone for this many hours a day has on your brain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the way that we're consuming information, right? The standard swiping and only now just briefly looking at headlines because the, the speed by which we're swiping um, or pushing buttons to like or unlike or what have you. Um, and how we make assertions. Exactly, exactly. Or not even, not even questioning what the information that's coming through and determining if whether or not we understand it's fake news or it's real news or if it's opinion related, we don't we don't really start to question that anymore. Um, there's a there's a study that he cites all the time about how, um, if anything, uh, girls, uh, adolescent girls, are most impacted by the way that they use social media and um, how they're impacted um, by depression and bullying that's happening. And so there's a lot of psychological turmoil that's happening. So it has a lot to do with the fact that the way that we built social media is intended to kind of be these um, hitting those dopamine receptors and saying like, oh yeah, let's push in this button. I'm getting adoration and and likes from all of Guys them. like me because I'm wearing a bikini. You right? feel me? Right? And so um, we're not regulating how we are designing all of these apps, all of the ways that, that we're engaging with each other in society. And wh- he's not necessarily saying that we're, we're going to like clamp down and you're not allowed to do that anymore but we really need to think about you know how we're 
you know, actively engaging each other in society and whether or not that like button is creating adverse effects that we're not, we're not thinking about. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. So question, what are your thoughts on the state of automation and when is it going to become a real problem for all blue collar workers in the U.S.? Yeah. Like, will robots be cutting people's hair soon? <laughs> there is actually a viral video out <coughs> just about that. Also, um, oh wait, can I before we move on? Can I just reference the uh, the, robot the robot butter, butter truck? truck. Yeah, it says it? a self-driving truck delivered butter from California to Pennsylvania in three days. Yeah, don't need to stop. A Silicon Valley startup has completed what appears to be the first commercial freight cross-country trip by an, an autonomous truck, which finished a 2,800-mile run from Tulare, California to Quakertown, Pennsylvania mm-hmm. for Land of Lakes in under three days. Yep. And then whoever this writer was was pretty clever. They said the trip was smooth, <laughs> like butter. <laughs> <laughs> Bam. Love it. Uh, so the interesting thing is, so I'll actually modify the question because it's not just blue-collar workers that are going to get impacted, right? It's actually white-collar workers as well. So the interesting thing about technology and and the way that robots and automation uh, works is that it's really about the repetitive motion. So you can have, uh, you know, repetitive manual work or repetitive cognitive work, but but both of those can easily be automated. Anything that can be placed into a system. So, uh, needing to read legal documents. Pass. Give that to a robot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew actually talks about that from personal experience because he was like, yeah, those five months at the law firm, all I did was read documents and try to find the right template for the next agreement. And I'm pretty sure a robot can do this because I'm doing a really poor job of doing this myself. Because I'm bored as hell. Exactly. Right. But, you know, that robot's going to read the, the word like, no, like no other and be done with it um, in a split second, right? Uh, same thing with accounting, uh, health insurance, um, how you um, look up travel bookings and what have you, all of those things that, that we're, we've now become accustomed to, all of those things can be easily automated. I work in healthcare, so there are now um, robots, AI, that is better at finding cancer than real-life radiologists. That's crazy. So it's not just the call center workers, which makes sense because there's already parts of that that are automated. Well, quick question. Are most of the call center jobs um, international anyway? Not all. But a good majority, they outsource like the Philippines, Malaysia, or India. I feel like I'm always on the phone with. Yeah, they outsourced a good portion of it. And then there was a lot of backlash that came from that. So actually, a good number of them have come back. Okay. Um, so so it's fascinating. To, I, I, for, for a little while, I remember um, a couple of customer service lines are like, Hi, I'm Bob, and I'm su- currently sitting here in Indiana. I'm like, oh, hey, Bob. <laughs> this is refreshing. <laughs> I'm like, hi, how's it going over here? Bob, what up, dog? I'm American, too. How are you, man? <laughs> right? And then you start testing them. I'm like, trying to, like, pop quiz them. I'm <laughs> like, going on in indiana <laughs> who's your favorite baseball team bob right right so what do you think uh, about the final four <laughs> um so so it, it's not just blue collar workers that are going to get impacted um there's a lot of jobs that are already on the way out 
um, and you start to see that in your everyday work, even in my own industry, as I mentioned, it's becoming easier to, to do that. Um, the other thing to be thinking about is the fact that those, as those jobs get eliminated or get reduced down, so you might not need that executive assistant, so let's say you have 10 executive assistants at the company, and then it drops down to like maybe four executive assistants. That's six people out of a job. Um, but Are they getting reallocated the jobs? Where could they be going? You don't know. Well, that's the question, right? Is how what what do we do with those folks? Um, and and so some people, I think when when Andrew started to do the research, he's like, what what does happen? You know, does retraining actually work? And the the research actually tells you that it, the success rates of those are anywhere from zero to fifteen percent. There is a New York Times article that uh, looked at West Virginia, I think, um, and there was a huge scandal there because uh, they got rid of essentially all of the coal mining jobs, and then it was the manufacturing jobs. They said, okay, well, we'll retrain all of you to become coders. Oh, this is the whole learn to code thing. Yeah, so learn to code. So there's no regulation on what happens with the retraining aspect of it. So there was this company that came in and said, hey, we'll take the, the funding that you're getting from the government that to, to replace you, but you get this retraining um, reimbursement. We'll take your money, we'll train you, you'll get a certificate, and you'll be ready to go out there. Um, and it turned out to be this huge fraud. Well, yeah, who the hell's going to... Because nobody's holding them accountable. So this company disappeared out of thin air and was like, wait, we, we got this training. It wasn't even that good. We got this flimsy piece of paper, and we still don't have a job. Now what? Right? So even if even if they were good, then what what happens? Well, where's the market for it? You know, these people want to stay in West Virginia, but they've got these coding degrees, supposedly, um, and there's there's no employer out there for them. Still doesn't work. Mm -hmm. right? But I think the the point that that needs to be made is that there are a lot of jobs out there. There are a lot of roles that we play in society that are currently not being well-funded or at least um, doesn't have a quote-unquote market value. But if you start to introduce the freedom dividend into this, you've got that 1000 bucks a month. Let's just say, so pick, pick one, daycare, right? Daycare people, if you didn't know this, don't get paid very well. And these are people who are trying to take care of your young ones before they go to kindergarten, um, and they don't get paid shit, right? But what happens if maybe we use that thousand bucks a month and we actually have someone who wants to open up his or her own daycare business and actually pays them a buttload more money, they're going to feel psych you know, psychologically far better, right? They're actually going to pay more attention to your kids because they're not worried about putting food on their own table. You're going to create and foster, you know, these wonderful kids who then want to learn because they're they've actually got this great um, this this great care back when they were little kids and could socialize better because their daycare assistants were actually taking mm -hmm. care of them. It changes the way that you look at society, right? So I mentioned earlier um, the you know little league soccer, right? So you've got the coaches who do that just as a volunteer gig. But what what happens if we start to change the way that we we you know fund society and people say you know what I I am retired I have a little bit of a savings um, off to the side so that's going to help me to stay you know alive and and 
put food on the table and everything, but I also have this $12,000 a year that I can work with. I'm going to put all of my time to just full-on volunteering mm-hmm. and supporting this charity that I really love the most. And, and so now when you're looking at different ways that people are are participating in society and not just worrying about how do I get that job to, to pay for my rent and for my food. What, in, in my mind, and I could be totally brain dead, but what jobs could not be automated? And what I'm thinking is like any jobs that involve personality and entertainment for the most part, so you can't replicate that with a robot. But other than that, what jobs are not at risk of being automated? Jobs, jobs that require human connection, essentially, right? Bingo. Uh, that's, the, that's the perfect way to describe it. Jobs that require human-human touch. So caregiving is a gigantic section of that. Um, you know, where we're putting our, our grandparents into nursing homes and what have you, also not very well-paid jobs, but... You know, to consider the fact that we could change the marketplace to, to give those people um, a better leg up in, in their hourly pay. Um, so in terms of elderly and child caregiving, for example, um, you're thinking about a lot of the jobs in healthcare, just because that's, that's where I work, so it's easy for me to think about that. So like physical therapy, occupational therapy, that type of thing. Um, there's a lot of that hand-to-hand touch nursing is still an emotional connection too because humans require that you know absolutely it's going to be a while before we get like a robot psychologist i think there's going to be i'm not hiring that robot man you know i think (laughs) we can use technology to make that easier so you know i may not physically let's just say i'm agoraphobic i physically cannot leave my house because i'm terrified of the outside world but i desperately need some help psychological help uh, let's use technology to get me face-to-face access by video. A psychologist who works with my psychiatrist to help modulate my medication. That's crazy right? shit. But can you imagine? We're now helping that person to work through the fear. his or her fears and mental illness and potentially maybe be able to walk out the door and go out and get the mail, right? But they're not going to be able to do that if they literally can't go to the psychologist's office. That's a good ass point. So it's a lot of cool stuff like that. Um, Andrew also makes the joke about how you're not going to get any robot plumbers very soon because that requires a lot of fine motor skills to be able to kind of weave your way through the backboards and, and what have you, or electricians. So that type of work um, is going to be it's it's going to be a while. I mean, they might be able to automate portions of the job, make it easier for them to get sight of something in the back because they're using like little tiny cameras or what have you that's really cool but at the end of the day that person still gonna be a person it's not gonna be a robot anytime soon do you think there will ever be a period where humans are like okay these robots provide me tons of convenience and my life moves way more smooth and easy because of it but there's something that's very central to human nature about struggle in the first place you know what i'm saying are humans going to be fundamentally different if they can't experience like day-to-day struggle yeah i mean like you know so much about yourself because you've been through some shit and you're stronger because of it right same thing with big fresh and myself are you are we omitting that by automating everything it's a great philosophical question i don't think we have enough time in this podcast to talk about it at all (laughs) 
I'm getting better at this podcasting, Big Fresh. <laughs> also, I don't think we have the right beverage for me talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll do some Hennessy next time. We'll yeah. get it loose. There we go, Big Fresh. Get on it, all right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a it's a really good question. Like, are are we going to become like you know the the human beings that were stuck on the ship of Wally, right? <laughs> Wally. Wally. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a really good question, and yet I think, uh, you know, the way that I imagine it is, do we want to become Star Trek, or do we want to become Mad Max? Do we need that much strife and terror and scarcity in the world to exist? Or could we potentially have a world where the convenience that we earn allows us to think differently about society, allows us to be more free to learn, allows us to start to unbuckle some of the stigmas that we have um, in life, like mental health um, or neurodiversity issues that, that we talk about now, is there an opportunity for us to unlock other kinds of struggles that we haven't had the freedom and the opportunity to, to actually dive into because we've been dealing with a lot of these base level struggles. I get it. Right? If you're in constant fear, it's hard to kind of self-analyze. I understand. Yeah. I mean, talk about one fear that we should be talking about way more but we don't because we're still struggling to live paycheck to paycheck which is about like i don't know 60 some odd percent of of that's crazy it's not good but guess what those americans not worried about climate change i wouldn't either because they're literally worried about whether or not i can make sure that my kids stay alive because i can't get food on the table right so so it's stuff like that where it's like base level can't can't resolve food issues you know basic life shelter the maslow's hierarchy of needs but if we start to resolve some of that through the freedom building then we can talk about hey are we actually going to uh save the earth because we also need that to exist in order for us to actually enjoy this mm-hmm. so okay on a real quick uh just a l- i just want to make sure we hit on a couple things can you elaborate on Andrew Yang's policy on student debt? Because as I had said, uh, we've said it a couple times, but I was blessed. I didn't really even understand student debt until I left mm-hmm. college. And I was like, wait, I don't have to pay anyone. I'm cool. But my friend has to pay the school back 40 grand mm-hmm. or pay Sally Mae like 50 G's. Okay, I can I can start something for myself and I start from scratch. K- kids my age are shafted yeah. with this stuff. It's like okay, you're in your most formidable years where you want to choose a career, but shit, no, you got to lock into a job you might hate. Especially, when it's just crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's got a sort of this multi-pond approach on how he would solve um, student loan crisis. First, first and foremost, but there's also a thing that, that he wants to wrap all of our heads around as it relates to education and, and what we, how we view it and what we can do with it. So, so he, he really appreciates the spirit of free college for all, which a number of his opponents are offering, right? Um, free public. Free public, that's true. Free public college for all. So UMass would be free. Yes. UMass, I came from the University of California system. Uh, that's up and going as well. So, so while that makes sense, here's the thing. 
42% of Americans have a college degree. Proportionally, that hasn't changed much since. Maybe someone could argue that's partly because of the steep cost, that that's why it's leveled off. But of the people who actually do finish college, I think the number is like 44% of them are underemployed. So they got a college degree, but then they didn't end up using it for what they thought they would use it for. So, and I'm not, I'm not saying that, okay, let's like just say it's a liberal arts degree person and they're, they're now working for a company that has nothing to do with humanities mm-hmm. or whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the person, my own friends who went to UCLA, got a prestigious degree in biology or electrical engineering, and they're currently bartending or they're a Starbucks manager. Fully underemployed. They went to school, but they're they're not doing anything with that degree. It's a scam, dude. So it's ridiculous. Exactly. Um, and then on top of that, I mean, let's talk about the fact that you know, uh, I think it's like fifty nine percent. Oh no, that's not right. Yep, fifty nine percent of people could go to school complete it, but there's like four out of ten of us who never finish. It just doesn't make sense to me that. You go to school for so much money. Like right now, like some of these schools are like 65K a year. You go because you want to be a functioning member of society. You show up, you work hard, you do all the papers that end up not even being applicable to to anything you're actually going to do in the workplace, even, even if it is the same major. You get that done and then you leave and then it's like, oh wait, you did your job on being a good member of society but you got to give us 100k. Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So YouTube uh, University, man. Hello. Uh, or Khan Academy. Oh, Khan Academy. Sponsor. Sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there's so many different ways that that we can educate ourselves now. So there there's a whole other conversation. We've got some Hennessy for it maybe. <laughs> about how we can get educational attainment that doesn't need to go through the traditional constructs of, of education. That's a whole other conversation um, <laughs> that Andrew can talk about. But uh, the interesting thing is that we're, we're selling this idea, and I'm not saying that, that you know, not everyone deserves to go to college, but it, it's continuing to perpetuate the idea that college is the end-all, be-all, the be-all, end-all, right? If you go to college, you're going to get this lucrative career or this successful career, however you define success. I mean, that's really the only pathway by which you can do that. But that, no good. But that's <laughs> not the case, right? Uh, and, and we have our own personal stories. We've got the statistics where kids are graduating and then they end up never, never actually using their degree. Um, and yet there are really phenomenal uh, vocations, jobs out there that are actually really well paying. Let's talk about the plumber. Well, they get like, average is like $60,000 a year. And and so I, I had to go to school and then I'm out now being a Starbucks barista. They actually make bread, but, oh, if you're a barista now, but it, this managers make some bread. <laughs> the, some I'm guy, friends with the manager. He's actually doing okay. But how many years did it take for that person to finally get there? That's right? a fact. Right? As opposed to, you know what? Forget college. I'm going to go straight to the vocational school that my high school has a, rel- a relationship with. I will actually come out 
with an apprenticeship before I even graduate and I'll already be making money as soon as I, I you know, put the tassel on the other side, right? We currently, um, the number of students that we have going through vocational training is something like 5 or 6% in America. And in Germany, it's 59%. We're not saying that everybody should be go work in a factory or a welder. Into vocational training, but it, it clearly there is a dearth of, of, of workers who are in, are in that space right now. And we desperately need more and more of them. And, and yet, we, there's becoming this stigma of, oh, vocational training, that's kind of a blue-collar job. That's not going to be worth anything um, in society. And actually, I can't fix my own toilet. So, yeah, this person is highly valuable to me. I'm going to hire Mario. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Luigi. Um, and so, so there is an aspect of that. And I think that's where you know, I, I, people say that Andrew is kind of a, a one-policy guy. But you can't help, again – realize the simplicity and the elegance of it is you know the freedom dividend for that 17 18 year old kid can decide for him or herself what to do with it hey you know what i do want to go to college i want to get this degree in architecture or in electrical electrical engineering so i'm going to be able to partially or maybe fully pay for my tuition depending on where i go but i have that choice i want to go to community college and I can partially fund or fully fund it because that is my choice. Or I can just go to vocational training. And so it, it, he tr- he trusts Americans to make that kind of decision. Do but you? I do. I do. Because I know a lot of people who I ask them now, you know, t- you know, 15 years later, it's like, you know what? I probably shouldn't have gone to university. Big Fresh, what would you do with a G more a month? Roll back like five years. Would you have done done anything differently? You might not have. Well, so if I was coming out of high school and I had the proper financial literacy classes in high school, I would probably start saving so that, you know, I could have like either an emergency fund or I could have something to put down as a down payment, like a house or something, you know? Yeah. And right now, if you had another grand coming in a month, do you have any debt right now? Yeah, student debt. So it would probably go straight into that or just kind of easing you know, the stress of having to pay some of those bills that I have to pay every month, you know? Exactly. Right? It's alleviating that that piece right there. You've done a really, really g- good job, and I thank you for explaining how the freedom dividends encompassing. It's like, I understand why it's a central policy now, and it disseminates across everything. Yeah, which is really cool. More money for everybody would equal a more productive society, I understand. It changes the way that you think about what paths you have. If humans are good, that's that's like you know the ultimate question though. <laughs> that's the one thing I'm a little hung up on. It's like, how do we know Big Fresh says he would buy bills, uh, he would take care of all his bills, but instead he would just like fund his mixtapes or like he would like give it to somebody. To which I would say, hey, that production company thanks you for making that mixtape because now they're gonna go and expand their company, right? <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> there's always, there's always, there's always upsides to. You're, you're to an having, optimist. Having that trickle up economy, you know, for sure. Uh, going back to the student loan thing, so, so that hopefully that answers one piece of it. Is like first and foremost, let's change the way that we view education and what is the right path for this obviously. Yes, I think there's an a, an opportunity for us to, you know, level the playing field and make sure that people who want to go to college can go to college. And I think. 
Andrew's version of answering that question is hopefully I lead in. Um, but there's another aspect that he talks about, which is the fact that college has gotten like, I think it was like 440% more expensive. Inflation's insane. Right? It's not actually just inflation, but it's the fact that it, he looked into the data, and guess what? Administrative overhead is the key factor that has gone up consistently. So they're just charging more. Correct. Yeah, that's what I was going to mention because I think um, I was like really shocked by this number, but the president of Brandeis gets paid anywhere. Like, I think the last figure I saw was like 800k a year, and like I don't know what they do on campus that is that valuable that they have to get paid that much. Well, so yeah, essentially, they're a CEO of a business. Yeah. <laughs> that's what a president of a because it's just a massive business. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that you know certain universities not all but certain ones have massive endowments of several yeah harvard was like 300 billion yeah who's well, you weren't here for the chart we had the harvard rowing coach up here he was saying like 300 billion or something crazy yeah yeah and michael bloomberg spoke at my sister's graduation uh -oh. i was like my sister's gonna be rich <laughs> let's go there you go I know there's another school that's like they've got a million dollars of endowment per student that they could spend, but they don't. Um, and, and so the the money is technically out there, but it's not being spent. Administrative overhead is getting higher and higher, and yet the the ROI essentially isn't there. Um, th there are deans of, of universities and colleges who um, who've incentivized based off of where they where they rank in the U.S. news, right? Uh, which, again, the rankings really have nothing to do with whether or not... Uh, the students are the happy. Students are, students are happy that they're graduating on time, that they're actually doing something with their degree, that they're actually being able to pay off their student loan debt. Yeah, that's insane. Or the fact that they're, you know, increasing diversity. Like, none of those factors that we, we, we want to care about actually matter in U.S. news rankings. So... You think about it, you know, the whole premise of free college, public college for all, on the one hand, the spirit of it makes sense, but the analogy that I'm coming up with is that you're, you're essentially giving people an iron lung when you probably should have given them, like, a Goliath lung. Mm -hmm. I get it. Right? So you have to think about what exactly is the root cause of the student loan debt that is happening, and there's a whole other aspect about predatory loan processes that are in place, and the fact of the matter is that we're probably all paying for student loans that our colleges no longer um, are, are the, debt <coughs> the debt servers for. They've already sold it, so they don't care anymore. They got paid a portion for the debt you carried, and now you're being, um, you're being harassed by debt collectors of a third service party vendor, right? But at the end of the day, like we need to talk about why it's why college is getting more expensive and not not increasing proportionally in value. Okay, so how do we start to um, alleviate some of that? How do we start to bend the cost curve of how much college actually costs? And and then we can talk about okay, so let's if you've gone from sixty thousand dollars a year annually in tuition and now it's spent and now it's forty thousand dollars. How does the freedom dividend apply? Or what else do we need to do in the system by which education and the industry of education um, is functioning? And how do we continue to look for other ways to, to help reduce these 
you know, ungodly attempt. AI technology, maybe that that might be a portion of it, but who knows? So I, I think there's a lot of different things that um, contribute to the student loan crisis at this moment, uh, like the fact that currently the government um, profits off of um, interest, um, off of our off our loans, and that shouldn't be the case. Or the fact that um, for for bankruptcy proceedings, you can't um, you can't your student loan debt as part of your bankruptcy. So there's a lot of things that, that need to be fixed systemically before we start talking honestly about free college for all. Well, <laughs> you know your stuff, man. Um, real quick, so Yang is now like, how do you do now? What, fourth? Depending on where you look at, he's anywhere between fourth and sixth place. Yeah. Okay, so his campaign is slowly being legitimized back on the campaign stage. Does he have a shot at winning? Depends on who you look at. Um, you know, if you look at traditional um, prediction models where you're looking at um, how elections were won back in the day with polls and uh, political endorsements and all that, probably the answer is no. Uh, if you look at uh, betting markets, which is a fascinating and a very hairy place that I still don't quite understand personally, but the, the odds are, are actually even with a lot of the top four competitors, which is fascinating. W what is it going to take to, yeah. in, in, on a campaign trail, to give him a, a bump and get him more momentum? So I think the interesting thing is that uh, why, hi why has his campaign lasted as long as it has? Why, why has he been able to beat out the other, what is it, like 18 people who have now since dropped out? Um, being a non-politician with zero political experience uh, whatsoever. We want someone new. <laughs> with the name <laughs> recognition, no name recognition whatsoever. And I think if you think about how Americans have, um, have voted with their feet over the course of the last three administrations, starting from... Obama, when it was hope and change, very much a populist, but also very singularly driven vision. What a crazy election that was, huh? That was incredible. I right? went to, you know, I went to the inauguration, the two thousand eight one. Wow. It was insane. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like two million people there. The I was like, passion, oh my god. The passion that he was able to, um, to to really engender in so many Americans, just because of his charisma, his vision. Of the things that he was saying, it, it totally turned election upside down, right? Same thing with Trump, you know, for better or worse, he had a singular populist message about, I know why you're suffering. MAGA, MAGA, MAGA. I will make America great again, right? And that's all it took for us. Uh, I would argue, argue that the reason why Andrew Yane is doing so well now, considering that people had zero or extraordinarily poor expectations of him is because he has the same singular populist message, which is, I actually know exactly why um, why Donald Trump got elected, and it was actually because of automation and technology, and it's going to continue to grow. You've all seen it from the iPhone. It started back in like 2004, the very first one, and now we're on like iPhone 11 with everything that you could possibly want now on a single device. The one thing I worry about... What does that look like now for next year? I get it. The one thing I worry about with his campaign just a little bit is like, this dude's wicked smart. 
Americans aren't collectively that smart. So it's like when he comes with all these complex issues, I feel like some people who are not necessarily the most educated are going to be like, dude, this is way over my head. Yeah. I mean, that's a valid concern. And then I would also say that I've been personally surprised by the number of supporters who kind of come out from the shadows. Um, we mentioned it earlier at the top of the of the hour where it's like, damn, like these people didn't care for politics, felt like they were um, ignored. I felt like they were told that they were stupid and that they should just stay wherever they are and and not participate. And they're coming out of they're coming out of the shadows, and it's very interesting to, uh, thing to see that. And I would say Bernie Sanders did the same thing as well during his 2016 campaign. I feel like there are so many in the mix right now. There are so many quote unquote progressive candidates. So competitively, who if some if one of the candidates dropped out now, what would make the biggest impact on those voters going to Yang? Would it be I mean Buttigieg won't drop out, but kind of boatload of money. Yeah. Not leaving anytime soon. Um but for instance, will Tulsi's voters go to Yang? Is a very um very high affinity if you look at some of the cross tabs of the polls that have come out. Um, some of the ones where they ask, you know, who is the second choice or, or whomever, and you see like almost wholesale, like Tulsi, Gabbard followers will, will head over to Yang, and I think actually vice versa. I, I don't want to pretend that, that Tulsi's are, are, are all ours, um, but the Aloha, you know, gang, they, they very much um, appreciate the, the spirit of Andrew's campaign and a lot of the policies that, that he, he offers. Um, so, and I mean, Tulsi is a proponent of UBI as well, so I think that that really helps. You also see some crossover um, with Sanders uh, voters as well because of the kinds of people that the they, young people. Polling. So it's a lot of the young um, and uh, not college educated voters that they're both attracting. So there's a really great article that came out. Um, I think it was like WMUR or something out of New Hampshire who said. Um, Andrew is a concern for Sanders because a lot of the voters that, that Bernie Sanders he needs to push him up. Yeah, Andrew already pulled out. Mm -hmm. Like they, they're already on his side. Um, so it's interesting to see a lot of that kind of overlap that, that you do see. I think more so on the progressive side, um, but I think the the appeal of of Andrew's movement has a lot to do with the fact that he is so pragmatic. I think technically the word is technocratic. Um, that that He's not appealing only to the progressive side or only to the moderate or to the conservative side. He's appealing to people who just want problems to be solved. And the practicality of that and the fact that he um, is humble enough to say, hey, we all have some really good ideas. Let's figure out how to pull all of the pieces together and create something together um, is what appeals uh, voters to him. It's really fascinating. So, New Hampshire, this will come out next week. Yeah. So, New Hampshire's tomorrow, tomorrow though. Tomorrow. <laughs> so, what's going on? Like, what what's going to happen? Yeah. yeah. So, I think uh, the campaign's been very, very smart. Uh, like, you'll watch this in a week. You yeah. can be like, Melissa, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that's the thing is that you can, you have to be as adaptable as possible. And so, to just say, let's just go with the flow and see what happens. That doesn't mean that you're not busting your ass, making sure that you've done as all of the work that you could possibly do. Um, I think the phrase that keeps on coming up and, and again and again on uh, calls is put everything on the table. 
this is not the time for you to Whoa. to, to Who's pre- your co who's <laughs> your the lead? Like Bill Belichick? <laughs> I know, right? Like, Let's go, gang gang. Let's get it. It's funny how quickly I this is a very American thing because um my my uh, European clients are like, There's so many sports references. Why? And I was like, I don't know. It's an American <laughs> thing. I'm really sorry. But but there is a thing about him just saying, like, hey, this if you are passionate about this movement and I think a lot of people who used to work for um, who who volunteered for the Obama campaign and also for Sanders as well? They're like, this is the passion that I'm looking for. This is the excitement of the movement that I'm looking for. So it's incredible to see how many people are have flooded into Iowa, who flooded into New Hampshire, and will continue to do so. There's literally a volunteer right now who flew from Tokyo to come volunteer for us. Wow! Canvassing right now as we speak. That's wild. Right. So, so when you go up tomorrow, what's happening? You're just meeting as many people like, hey, vote for Yang, vote for Yang. It's get out the vote time, baby. So, I mean, every campaign is doing this as well. But it, it's that thing where you say, like, hey, we followed all this entire list of people who said that Yang was number one. And so now it's about making sure that they actually come out to vote. So Be on their ass, man. <laughs> I get it. Sales. Gently with the humanity first yeah. <laughs> ideas. But, yes, to get on their ass. <laughs> I know. I signed up for, like, a million call banks trying to get in touch with um, campaigns because that was my little weasel way in. Sign up for a call bank. Then you get the organizer's number. That's how I got Yanni's number. <laughs> and so I just get a million calls a day now. Really? Like, hey, are you joining us in Quincy? Or, hey, uh, we're outside South Station. <laughs> nope, I'll be in the back of this empty warehouse. <laughs> Absolutely. So, real quick, one more thing. If Yang is not nominated, and one, I'm definitely going to get this book, will someone um, elect him to a cabinet, you think? Some people say, like, cabinet of labor, possibly. Yeah, there's a lot of... Um there's been a lot of talk about, you know, hey, this guy is so ridiculously smart. So if he doesn't make it as a president, for the love of God, make sure that he's in the administration um, at a you know high rank because that is otherwise that's like talent that just wandering right there, right? Um, that I would say we go back into a full circle of how I got introduced to Andrew Yang's message was that Freakonomics podcast. So. It's like someone's going to listen to this thing and say, hey, Melissa should run for office. <laughs> she knows her stuff. Oh, Lord. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's it just barely got into politics. So it'd be fun, know. though, wouldn't it? You know what? I'd help you campaign. I'd love it. You'd vote for Melissa, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> um, you know, you never know. The, the whole run for something uh, pack that's going on and just, just being able to see fresh um, faces now up there uh, running for races that you wouldn't necessarily expect. So you never know, I suppose. Um, but yeah, that Freakonomics podcast. So uh, Steve Dubner, I think, right? So he asked him, he's like, dude, you're this no-name guy. This is like your second podcast, because I think the first one was like Cam Stein or something. He's like, you don't have a shot, right? Like, what's what's this is a really cool idea and all the other things that you got in there floating around, but let's be realistic. Like what's going to happen? Like, are you, you in it to win it? He's like, well, of course I'm going to, I'm going to try my damnedest to, to try and get out there and, and win to the white house. And if I get there, then yeah, that's awesome. But this was the thing that I was like, I had to rewind and I was like, wait, what did you just say? He's like, 
I, I want to just make sure that we solve the problems that are, are really impacting the human condition. And so if it's me as president, awesome. It, but if it is me participating in, a, in somewhere in an administration that is going to get the freedom dividend through the door, uh, to start actually taking technology seriously and the way that it's impacting our daily lives in the economy, in the global economy, particularly in the way that we look at cybersecurity and just foreign policies and the way that you know we can get attacked now. It's no longer about missiles, but it's about drones and, and you know hacking scandals and all that. Yeah, like I would be more than down for that. And I was just like, holy shit, this guy literally has no ego. He just is here to make sure that we solve problems. Would you be pumped if he was like Secretary of Labor? He'd be like, you know, I did my job. He's there. You know what? If it means that, so let's just pick on like Secretary of Commerce or something, right? Or if they come up with like a Secretary of Technology or something. like Probably a necessity at this point, right? Oh God, yes. I don't know why we don't have it already. Um, but if he's there making sure that people are starting to widen their perspectives about how do we actually govern and how do we actually enact policy that is going to do some good now and not be stagnant and have a stalemate, then yeah, I would be pumped. And I think that's a thing that um, many of us who have joined the campaign, who are volunteering or investing our ass, making sure that people hear his message again and again is because the way that he's thinking about society already for us is what everybody should be thinking about because we shouldn't be saying, hey, you know what? Like, there's all these great ideas and and it works for us and it it should have worked for us in the 20th century, but we're now in the 21st century, so we're going to keep on hammering on those ideas that we haven't haven't enacted yet. Uh, I want somebody who's already looking ahead and saying, hey, this is already going to happen and I don't want to be asleep at the switch when this gigantic industrial revolution happens and next thing you know, people are freaking out, they're all unemployed, what's going to happen? They're going to yeah. go into their base primal urges and mm-hmm. there's going to be violence. I don't want that to happen. I think we deserve better as Americans and I think we're smart enough to be able to solve that ahead of time. So, hey, you know what? He said it himself. He's not going to run third-party candidate. His first and foremost job is to make sure DJT gets out of the office, and then let's make sure that you know we're going to be serious about how the freedom dividend is going to come into place. And you've seen the Hill talk about it a bunch of times in a bunch of mainstream media posts as well. He's like, Andrew busted the Overton window wide open. People are saying before, you know, like, hey, like maybe tens or like in the teens percentage points of people who would be interested in universal basic income. There's a recent poll out of Iowa that says it's now 53% of Americans in Iowa who would want universal basic income. That's how much has changed the conversation. Pretty wild. (laughs) Honestly. 5X. I mean, that's insane. Oh, my God. So, you know what? He's already done his job, and then he wants to continue pushing it even more because he knows that people are ready for this conversation and that they're ready for, for us to truly move forward and, and make society the way that, that we can make it um, for for this upcoming transformation. We're ready for it. Well, let me say this much. 
I learned a ton this episode, <laughs> and I'm very grateful to have her on it. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Melissa Lynn, Yangang State Lead of Massachusetts, and that was my golden hour.